0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. As I was praying about what to preach on this morning, this is where we're living at Lenexa Baptist. We've been in Matthew for about two years. We're at the close of the race. I think our church is ready to move on to another book, but it's been fun to study through the book of Matthew. This has just been on my heart. Um, It's where I've been studying. It's where I've been praying. So... Uh, I'm going to share with you from Matthew 25 this morning. As you're finding your place in God's Word, I just want to say what a delight it is to be here with you at Hoffmantown this morning. Um, as a young man who grew up in ministry in Oklahoma and, and uh, had opportunity to do ministry in Alabama and, then, and now in Kansas City, uh, Hoffmantown has always been a well-known church, and, uh, and I am praying for you, and uh, I'll tell you this, on the basis of God's Word, the best days are ahead of you. Because um, Christ has told us he's going to build this church. Amen. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, I'm praying for you, but delighted to be here with you. I am a friend of Pastor Stephen more than that. He's been my mentor, he's been my boss, he's been a good friend, continues to be a good friend. And uh, I know you're blessed to have him here. He is the real deal. What you see is what you get with Pastor Steve. Who he is in the pulpit, who he is at the church, is the same person he is on the golf course. And I've seen it, all right? <laughs> Even when he doesn't hit it straight, he's still a godly man. He is an amazing man. You're blessed to have him during this season in life of your church. But I'll tell you this. I'm also, as, as Pastor David mentioned earlier, I'm a good friend of Pastor David's. And, and we, we went to high school together. We went to the same youth ministry in high school. Uh, we went to the same seminary. And uh, I'll tell you this much about Pastor David. He's always been a leader. He's always been a leader. And even more than that, he's always been a man who loved Jesus. And uh, I know you already know this, but you are blessed to have him. You are amazingly blessed to have him. Well, Matthew 25. As we look at this text, we need to get a little bit of context here to bring you up to speed on where we're at. If you know Matthew 24 and 25, you know that this is the Olivet Discourse, and there's a lot of interpretation, a lot of uh, in fact, controversy surrounding these these couple of chapters. But it all begins back in chapter 4, the beginning of that chapter, when the disciples are remarking about the beauty of the temple. And the temple was glorious. And Jesus says back to them, not one stone's going to be left on another. So essentially, he's saying, don't get too impressed with that temple because it's coming down. It's only temporary. And aren't we glad that the temple was temporary? That we can now go into the presence of the Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So it was temporary is coming down. Uh, but that alarmed the disciples because everything about their life centered around that temple. That was the place where the glory of God dwelled. That's where they met with God. He's now just said it's all coming down. And they're a little alarmed. They're a little bit concerned. They're a little bit confused. And so while a lot of people do all these interpretations about the end times, primarily Jesus is just speaking to 12 guys who are really scared. And how's it all going to come to an end? And in fact, everything uh, that we see in 24 and 25 is really just an answer to their two questions. When is this going to happen? And what are going to be the signs? And so Jesus gives them and he gives us a lot of detail. But in all that detail, he really just tells them three things. He tells them, number one, I am coming back. As certain as I came the first time, I am coming coming back. In fact, he says his return is more certain than the sun coming up tomorrow. It's more reliable than the laws of nature. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So write it down, take it to the bank. Christ is coming back. But secondly, amen, we can, we can get excited about that. But secondly, he tells him makes very plain, you don't know exactly when. You may know some seasons, you know a little little generalities about when I might return, but no one knows the exact day or hour. So the next time somebody shows up telling you, they said, no, I'm not having any of it. Jesus told us, you don't know the day or the hour. He said, the angels in heaven don't know the day or the hour. Jesus said, at least at that point in his life and ministry, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So, number one, I am coming back. Number two, you don't know exactly when. So, third, and probably most importantly and practically for them and us, is you must always be prepared. Since you know I'm coming back, but you don't know exactly when, always be prepared. And, in fact, what he does in uh, chapter 25 and the end of chapter 24 is he gives them five illustrations to drive home this truth of Christians always being prepared. For his return, he gives them the, the example of Noah and the flood. He gives them the thief in the night. He gives them the faithful servant. And then, as we'll see this morning, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the ten virgins. And then finally, he'll give them the parable of the talents. And so, the real theme of all these things is always be prepared. Uh, Well, this morning, this parable the Tim Bridesmaids, in order to really understand, to grasp what what he's saying here, you got to understand something of an ancient Jewish wedding. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on ancient Jewish weddings, and the more I've studied this, there's a lot of people who think they're experts on ancient Jewish weddings, but there's a lot of disagreement on the details. But everybody agrees on some basic things about an ancient Jewish wedding. Number one, in an ancient Jewish wedding, it was an arranged wedding. The father would select... A bride for his son and the longer I'm a father the more I think this is a wise system they had going back then (laughs) but but the father would would select a bride for his son now it wasn't a forced marriage because the son had to concur with the father, and in fact, the bride had to concur with the, with the choice as well. And the family, a good, a good picture of this is in Genesis when Abraham sent his servant to go find a, a bride for his son Isaac. you remember the, the, the servant goes out, and just as God had kind of showed it to him, he sees Rebecca, but he goes to her house, and what does he say? Uh, Do you want to go? He gives her the choice. In fact, her, her family says, give us seven days. He says, no, I'm going back today. she got to make a decision. You remember, Rebecca says, I'll go. Isn't that amazing? Rebecca, without ever having seen the son, just on the word of the servant and the beauty of the father, it was, as it was described to her through a servant, said, I'll go. Does that sound familiar to, to some of us who haven't seen the son, but just on the word of one of his servants who told us about the glory of the father and the beauty of the son, we trusted in Jesus? So it was an arranged marriage, and, and, but they had to concur. And then when they did, when there was a concur between all these parties, they would have a, a ceremony to kind of initiate the beginning of this, and they entered into a betrothal period. And you were uh, covenantally and contractually bound in that marriage relationship at the betrothal stage. You were married in every way except one. You didn't live together and you didn't sleep together. But if you broke off that betrothal, it was considered divorce. And if you were unfaithful in that betrothal period, it was punishable by death, which brings new light to the Joseph and Mary situation, doesn't it? So they entered into this betrothal period. And during that betrothal period, the son would go away to prepare a home, not just a house, but a a place of security, a place of provision where she would be cared for. And the bride's job during that period was to make herself ready for the groom's return. She didn't know exactly when, she may have a general idea, but as the day drew closer, her and her bridesmaids would go out to meet the groom. They would select a place, they'd go there, and there they would anxiously wait for the groom's return. And they would oftentimes take lamps and torches with them, because the groom, more often than not, would return in the dead of night, and they wanted to be prepared and ready So that when he came, the groom would come and and the bride and the groom would get together and there'd be this parade and there'd be this huge feast and there'd be this huge party and the wealth of the father would overflow to the bride and the bridal party and all the family would be a good time. Now does that story sound familiar of a father who's chosen a bride for his son and we have to concur and we place our faith in Jesus? Though not having seen him, as Peter says, we love him and are filled with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And we trust in him. There's a there's a there's an agreement. There's a, there's a trusting in him by faith. And then what does the son do? He goes away. And what is Christ doing today? John 14, don't let your hearts be put Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I'll come again. That you, where I am, you may be also. So the sun goes away to prepare a place. What is our job? Our job, as we're seeing right here in this text this morning, always be prepared. We're always making ourselves ready. We're always remaining faithful, trying to be spotless and blameless, pure and holy, ready for his return, faithful to the task that he's given to us. Because we know what? We know one day he's coming back. We don't know exactly when, so we're always making ourselves ready. But one day he's going to come, and and the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive together and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then we'll be united with him, and then what's going to happen? There's going to be an incredible feast called the Marriage Supper of the lamb amen isn't that a beautiful picture well that's the practical application of this parable for us i'm giving you the end at the beginning that you and i as the bride of christ knowing he's coming back we're always making ourselves ready so with that in mind let's just read this all together because i want us to see the fullness of the the passage and then we'll we'll talk about it look in verse one chapter 25 then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delayed, and they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there'll not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. That God, when it comes to the end, you've not left us to our own devices. You've given us a very clear revelation of yourself and of your truth so that we can prepare ourselves and be ready. Lord, I pray this morning that there would be no words of mine this morning that would muddy the water. Let them fall by the way. Let your word go forth in power and change our hearts and our lives. Lord, we thank you for your words. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Speak into our hearts. Put aside any distractions. Let us hone in on you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see these uh, ten bridesmaids, and and they're alike in a lot of ways. Now, we know only five of them are going to get to meet the groom and go in with the groom and be a part of the wedding feast. But these ten grooms uh, or ten bridesmaids, they're a lot alike in a lot of ways. And I want to focus on their similarities first. Number one, they all want to see the bridegroom. They all identify as as being a part of the bridal party. They all have lamps, meaning from outward appearance sake. They all look like they're part of the group. They look the part. And they all want to go to the feast. I mean, who doesn't want a a free meal and a a great party? They all want to go. They all want to be a part of this feast. They all want to meet the groom. In other words, what we would say is they all claim to be Christians. They all look the part. That they they all want to go to heaven. They all want to go to feast the other feast, and they're all longing for the coming of Christ. So they got the external appearance. They've got a claim. They look the part, but not all of them, as Jesus makes plain here. Not all of them are going to go in to be with the groom and be a part of the wedding feast. So the question is, what's the issue? Now, the first thing that some people see is, well, well, they fell asleep. And that's true. They all fall asleep. That's actually something they all have in common. You see it in verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delayed, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. And some have suggested that their sleeping indicates negligence on their part. That they were negligent in, in their preparation for Christ's return. But we don't really see Jesus condemning them for their sleep. Uh, the way it's presented, it was just natural. It was nighttime and they would fall asleep. It's not like... Jesus with the inner three in the garden of Gethsemane, when he comes back and says, could you not stay alert? That doesn't seem to be the case here. It's just, just natural. It would be nighttime. They get drowsy and they, they, they fall asleep. And, and what do we know? If sleep was the issue, none of them would have got in. Because both the wise and the foolish, they all sleep. So, so sleep is not the issue. It just appears that, that in their sleeping, they're going about the natural activities of life. It's, and back in 24, 40, and 41, it talks about uh, two men working in the field. One's taken, one's left. Two, two women grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. And the picture there is that the return of Christ is sudden. It's unexpected. Uh, that they're just going about their natural activities. And that, that's what appears to be happening here. And, and I don't want to take this too far because in parables, you don't want to get sidetracked on the little things. you got to make the, the main things the main things. But, but I, I want to say I think there's an important point here about being prepared for Christ's return. That in being prepared for Christ's return, it doesn't mean that we stop everything that we do and just stare up at the heavens and wait for Christ to return. That in being prepared for Christ's return, it doesn't mean uh, that we all of a sudden become some kind of spiritual air raid wardens, you know, that we're just looking up at the heavens. Or, or, nor does it mean that we're just always sitting around tables trying to fit the return of Christ into our own little eschatological time frame or framework. No, it doesn't mean that we suspend all activities, but it does mean that in all of our activities, we as Christians are to have a spirit of anticipation of Christ's return. That as Second Peter chapter three says, that that knowing that Christ is coming back, that knowing that truth, we're looking, and I love this word. Peter says we're hastening. We're hastening Christ's return. That's, that's to be our spirit as believers in Jesus Christ. You know, when Faith and I were getting married, I remember that week leading up. I'd take the week prior off of work so I could go and help make things ready and get stuff done in preparation for the wedding. And, and I'm telling you, when I got out there, and, uh, man, I was hastening that, that Saturday afternoon. I was, I would, the clock, I was just wishing it could move forward faster, But in light of that hastening, I couldn't just sit around and do nothing. I had a lot of work to do. But I can guarantee you, in everything that I did that that week, in the back of my mind was a constant knowledge that Saturday is coming and that's gonna be a really good day. That's us as believers. We're hastening, Uh, we're anticipating. Doesn't mean we stop, doesn't mean we don't make plans. But it means that in all of our planning and all of our activities, We're hastening, we have a spirit of anticipation towards Christ's return. So they all fall asleep, and when the groom arrives, what happens, they all wake up. Another similarity, in the moment that the groom returns, they all realize when the groom shows up, they realize the seriousness of that moment. And when the groom finally does show up, they're willing to do whatever it takes to go in with the groom and to be part of that party. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, not all of them had the same level of preparation. Not all of them had the same level of commitment. But when the bride or when the groom arrived, they all understood that being with the groom is of supreme value and importance. In fact, what do they say? They, they, they begin to ask some of the other bridesmaids, can we borrow some of your oil?" We're willing to do whatever it takes. We just got to, at this moment, now it's become abundantly clear that being with him is of supreme value. Can we borrow some of your oil? And and again, I don't want to get too sidetracked on the details of this parable, but I think there's another important point here. Listen, when Christ returns, you can't borrow the faith of another individual. In other words, you're not getting to be with Jesus and getting to heaven on the basis of your mama's faith. And you're not getting to heaven on the basis of your wife's faith or your husband's faith or your brother's faith. It's your faith that determines whether or not. You can't borrow the faith of another individual. But the main, the greater point here is that when the groom shows up, they all realize that, that being with him is of supreme value and importance. But at that moment, note this, it's too late. See, the difference between going with the groom and being with him at the, at the wedding feast the difference was not what they did in the moment of his arrival. The difference maker is what they did to prepare in advance of his arrival. It's like Noah with the flood. Listen, they all mocked Noah. They thought he was crazy. But when the rain started falling and the flood waters started rising, they stopped mocking. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that flood, listen, they all, in that moment, they all wanted to be on the ark. But once the door was shut, it was too late. You know, as I was going back and reading Noah a couple weeks ago in preparation for Matthew 24, Noah and his family got on board the ark seven days in advance to make sure that they were prepared. And listen to me this morning. When Christ returns, when he comes back in that moment, nobody is going to doubt his deity. In that moment, nobody's going to mock him. Nobody's going to laugh at him. Listen to me. Scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the difference as to whether or not you know his salvation will not be what you do in that moment, but what you did in advance. Were you prepared? So you got this group of bridesmaids, they, they all identify as the bridal party, they all look the part, they all got a claim. they all have the appearance, they all want to go to heaven, they all fall asleep, they're all going about the natural activities of life, and when, when the groom arrives, they all realize being with him is of supreme importance. But again, what do we know? Only five got in. So we got to ask ourselves, what, what did make the difference? Well, I think the key, what made the difference, the key is it's found in verses two through four. In verses two through four, it says, Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the, the prudent took oil um, in their flasks along with the lamps. As far as I can tell, as best I can see, the only difference between these two groups is one group took additional oil and one didn't. So we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Well, I think it means at least three things. Number one, it means there was a seriousness to their commitment. Um, This five that that had additional oil, they had put another level of thought into what it was going to take to be with the groom and to be a part of that party. In other words, this was a serious commitment. We're going to do whatever we have to do in advance to ensure that we don't miss out on that moment. In other words, this was not a flippant decision. This was not a spur of the moment decision. Oh, yeah, I think I'd like to go. Let me just jump in here with everybody else. No, it was a serious and a supreme commitment demonstrated by the decisions they made in advance for preparation of his coming. And there's an important lesson for us here. Listen, following Jesus is not something that you flippantly fit into your schedule when it's convenient. Following Jesus is not just another hobby that you add to the list of all the other hobbies in your life. Following Jesus, it's not even just about going to heaven. And that's how it's often presented. You want to go to heaven or you want to go to hell? Well, who wants to go to hell? No, following Jesus, it's not just an insurance policy against hell. It's the supreme commitment of our lives. Listen to me, when you understand who you really are, that we are all dead in our transgressions and we can do nothing in and of ourselves to save ourselves. We are condemned. We're children of wrath, sons of disobedience, and all that we really deserve is death and hell. When you realize who you are and you realize who Christ is and what he did, that even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he came While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He did what we couldn't do, died the death we should have, put himself on the cross for our sins, not his, so that he could make a way of life unto us, so that we could, as we said earlier, so that we could be saved by grace through faith. When you really understand who he is, who you are, and what he's done, it's not enough. You just tip the hat and go on about your life. No, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Verse one: Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That, as Paul says in Philippians chapter three, when he understood who Christ was, everything else became rubbish. The first thing that we see in bringing additional oil, they were making a serious commitment, which leads me to a second point here. Not only was it a serious commitment, it was a sacrificial commitment. It meant that they were willing to sacrifice in in their commitment to meet the groom. you got to remember oil wasn't cheap. To bring additional oil meant that they were so committed to making sure that nothing stood in their way of meeting the groom that they were willing to sacrifice to get it. That the prospect of being with him and joining that feast was so valuable to them that I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to be with him. And I'm here to tell you this morning that following Jesus is in no way self-indulgent. We have made following Jesus self-indulgent. We've appealed to men on the basis of what Christ can do for them or the benefits. And surely we know as believers there are a multitude of benefits in following Jesus. But listen, that's never the way Christ presented it. That's not how he presented it. I I get aggravated. You see these pastors out there preaching these sermon series on on 10 ways to get a date by Friday. Six ways to get a better. They're just trying to use Jesus to work their side of the street. And that's not the way Christ approached this. What Christ makes clear here and in so many other places in scripture is that while you may be interested in Christ because he can heal your illness and and maybe you're interested in Christ because you think he can help you get a better job or improve your vocational life or maybe you're interested in Christ because you believe he can heal your marriage and he can do all those things but listen to me this morning unless you are willing to take up your cross and follow him you're not going to meet the groom and you will not be a part of that wedding feast and those aren't my words those are the words of Christ That following him is a willingness to take up your cross. These bridesmaids that go in, they're making a serious commitment, a sacrificial commitment, but finally, probably most importantly, they endure to the end. I can just imagine one group, they probably heard about the party, the wedding feast. Sign me up, free food, great party, I think I want that. But they didn't count the cost. And they didn't make preparation. So when the delay came and things got difficult, their lamps went out. They weren't in it for the long haul. And when things got rough and there was a delay, their lamps went out. And the implication is clear. The kingdom of heaven does not belong to those who simply make a confession. The kingdom of heaven does not belong to those who simply walk an aisle and get dunked in a pool. The kingdom of heaven does not belong to those who simply joined a church and said a prayer. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who counted the cost, committed themselves to Christ, and therefore they endure and persevere to the very end. And some of you are saying, well, pastor, it sure sounds like you're, you're preaching a works-based salvation. No way. I am not preaching a works-based salvation. But what I am saying is that if you're truly committed to Christ, if you've truly been born again by the Spirit of God, those who truly know Him will endure and persevere to the end. Not because they're good, but because God is good, and what God starts, He always finishes. My life verse is Philippians 1 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who began the work of salvation? God did. Who carries it on? God. Who's going to complete it? God. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. I always say when God saves a person, he saves them to the fullest, past, present, and future. But listen, that knowledge gives us the primary indicator of whether or not we truly know him. Whether or not we'll we'll be with him when he returns. And that is not what I did years ago, but am I currently walking and persevering with him today? So many people, they're, they're, they're relying upon a prayer that they prayed years ago, and it made absolutely no difference in their life. So many people that are relying upon a baptism that they can't even remember and had no effect on their life. And what scripture is indicating, what what Christ makes clear is that the assurance of our salvation is indicated and based upon our faithfulness to Christ today. And this doesn't mean that we're perfect. I'm not saying that at all. But it does mean that as I walk with him and I, enter, uh, I get off track and I get on, maybe into sin, then I experience something called the conviction of the Holy Spirit and God disciplines me and I repent of it and I come back to him quickly. And people all the time ask me, well, how far away can you go and still be saved? Listen, you asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. That'd be like me asking my wife, Faith, how far can I go and still be faithful to you? That's ridiculous. If I love her like I do, I don't even want to get close to the line. What Christ is making clear here is that those who truly know him will persevere. I just finished reading a couple of weeks ago a book called The Insanity of God. If you've not read it, I would recommend it to you by, by Nick Ripkin. And he's telling these stories of these missionaries. He goes around the world and he interviews these missionaries. And he was interviewing house church pastors in China. And he, he, he was making appointments with them to interview them. And one of the young house church pastors made an appointment with him to tell him his story. And a couple of the older house church pastors grabbed Nick and they pulled him to the side. And they said, hey, we see a lot of promise in this young guy. But right now we're, we don't know that we can trust anything he says. Because he's not been to prison yet. Did you hear that? Number one, they're indicating sooner or later he's going to go to prison. If he really loves Jesus, he's going to go to prison. And then what are they saying? Then we're going to find out. Listen, those that know Christ will endure to the end. Maybe you're here this morning. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? I asked you today, are you a Christian? You said yes. But you're currently living in immorality and sin. And you're unrepentant. Maybe initially had a little joy. No real change. Your lamp has gone out. Because you failed to count the cost. Now I'm not here to tell you whether or not you're saved. But I can tell you this. The Bible offers you no assurance of salvation. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian who's not seeking to walk in faithfulness and displaying Christ-like qualities. Well, I don't know about you, as I read this parable, I, 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 it sounds harsh. I mean, because you think about it, you think, well, man, why couldn't the groom just give him another hour to go get some more oil? I mean, come on. Just, just give him a little more time. And there's a lot of people that think about God in that way. Well, I'm not living for him, and uh, it's really made no difference in my life, but, but he's going to let me in. I mean, he's a good, loving God. Listen, he is good, and he is loving, and he's overwhelmingly gracious, but he's also just, and he can't overlook sin. And the reason why he puts passages like this here, and believe me, if you study through Matthew like we've been through it, studying through Matthew, it will hit you in the face how many times Jesus says there's a whole lot of people out there who are gonna say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and know you? He's gonna say, I didn't know you. And some of you are saying, boy, this is not lovey-dovey. Thank you, guest preacher. <laughs> but Listen. Why does the word of God use harsh language like this? Why does it give such stern warnings? If you have a child, if your son or daughter, your grandchild was walking into a busy street and you know that child, as soon as they stepped foot in that street, there was certain death, would you say, hey, honey, I don't want to offend you, but would you please maybe come back over here a little bit? No, you'd you, get over of here, get out of the street. Because you knew that certain death was coming. Jesus, right here, is waving his arms to let you know, I am coming back. You may think you've got plenty of time, but you don't know the day or the hour. So you better be prepared. And I'm telling you now that heaven doesn't belong to those who just say a prayer and walk an aisle, it's those who count the cost, make the commitment. One day we're going to meet him. You ever been driving down the road and all of a sudden, you saw those flashing lights in the rearview mirror? Not that I've ever had that happen to me, but <laughs> maybe some of you. What happens when you see those flashing lights? I don't know about you, but the I'm pulling over. I'm in trouble now, scared to death. In the very next passage in Matthew, he's gonna talk about the son of man coming on the clouds with a myriad of angels. You think you're scared of a set of flashing lights in your rear view mirror, imagine standing for Christ himself coming on the clouds of heaven with a myriad of angels. I remind you, one angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 men. You don't wanna encounter that moment and not be prepared because in that moment, the door shut No second chances, no mulligans, no do-overs, no reincarnation, no purgatory. When the door is shut, you better be prepared. I'm asking you this morning, are you ready? I was reading again in Psalms chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, Jesus says, Surely I'll tell the decree of the Lord. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them like a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. And then what does he say? Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. You know what he's saying right there? You better bend the knee now. Lest his, wrath, lest his wrath be kindled and you perish in the way. You know what he's saying? You're going to stand before him. You can bow now willingly and know his salvation, or you can bow then forcibly as he extends his scepter, but know this: one day you're going to bow. Blessed are those who take refuge in him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that warns us with great clarity With no ambiguity, you have told us, I'm coming back. And you've made clear what it takes. God, I pray for all of us. Your word reminds us that we're to examine ourselves consistently to ensure that we're of the faith. God, I pray that all of us, myself included, as the word of God examines all of us. I pray all of us would examine our hearts this morning. Are we in the faith? And I don't know. I don't know where everybody stands this morning. Really, that's only known between you and them, Lord. But I think they know this morning. I think they know whether or not they truly know you. You're not a God of confusion. God, I pray for those that know you this morning. They know that they know. But maybe they've not been where they need to be. They might have not been faithful to your mission Maybe they're engaging in some activities they shouldn't be engaging in. God, drawn back to yourself. But maybe there's some people this morning. Boy, they can put on a good face on Sunday and they fooled a lot of people, but they can't fool you. And they know in their heart this morning they've never placed their faith in Christ. Maybe they got all the appearance, they made a claim, they've said a prayer, but they know in their heart they have no real relationship with you. God, I pray this morning with all my heart because you're coming back someday and they're going to meet you. God, I pray that they would prepare themselves by today, by bending the knee and committing themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to following you with all their heart. And today they'd be born again by the Spirit of God to follow you. God work in all of our hearts today we pray this in Christ's name Amen at this time I'm going to invite you to, to stand with me this morning you know I, I believe that the word of God is intended to be responded to and maybe there's some of you this morning you would say Pastor I, I don't know I, I, I. why would you live in a place of uncertainty why wouldn't you just nail it down today Maybe you know, I don't know Christ. Maybe you've never even been one of those who raised the hand. You've never even said a prayer in your life. But today you wandered in here. Can I tell you today, there's a God who loves you. We sang about it earlier. Despite all your sin, past, present, and future, everything you've done before the foundation of the world, he knew you. And he had already decided, knowing everything you'd ever do, to send his son to make a way of salvation for you. And today, on the base of no act of your own, apart from just believing in Jesus, you can be born again from the inside out, the Holy Spirit placed inside your heart, set down a new path, a path that leads to eternal life. If you've never done that, let today be the day of salvation. Meet Jesus. Fall in love with Christ. So you respond right now as, as we just... Uh, participate in this invitation. If God is working on your heart this morning, I want to challenge you. Would you step out right now? Would you come down? We got counselors here at the front. Maybe you, some of you just want to pray right where you're at. If God is working in your heart, would you come this morning? Would you sing with me? I don't know if a company knows, but I surrender all... Could we just sing that? David may want to come up here and lead this a whole lot better than I can. David, come on up, brother. Can we just sing I Surrender All? It's an old hymn. Would we do that this morning, all of us together? Maybe you've known Christ for 60 years. Could we just pray that together in a song? Lay it all down right in front of Jesus and say, I don't know where we've been. I don't know what we've done. I don't know if we're walking in awesome faithfulness this morning. But how about all of us just sing together and say, we're going to surrender it all to Jesus right here this morning. Pastor David, will you just lead us in this song one time? We'll sing it through one time, and then we're going to pray.
1: All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I free. pray
0: I want to thank you again for being here this morning. You don't know what it means to, to me this morning to even have a place to preach. I can't believe anybody let me. I'm telling you, I, I, I praise the Lord. I look around, I see this sanctuary filled. I truly believe with all my heart, God wants to do something right here at Hoffman Will we all just commit ourselves to Christ? It's not rocket science. If it was, I wouldn't be doing it. He gave us one mission, didn't he? Said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. There's only one head of this church and his name is Jesus. And I guarantee you, if everybody in this room, if we would all lay everything down in front of him, surrender everything to him, there's no limit to what God could do through this church. Whoever's in this pulpit, whoever's here, the best days are ahead of this church. Let's let him lead. Lay aside all our desires, all our wills, all our plans. Unless you lay at the foot of Jesus. Say, Jesus, wherever you lead, we'll go. I want to do something as we close this morning. I, I believe, is it Jeff Bartlett? Jeff Bartlett. 48 hours, he's going to deploy. And I want Jeff to come right here. Jeff and his wife, you come up here. And uh I want as many of us as we can just to put our hands on this man right here. I'm so grateful, I don't know about you, but we have a lot of men and women who serve all around this world to protect the freedoms that we take for granted every day. And here's a family that's gonna sacrifice. Here's a man who's gonna put himself in harm's way to support our troops to make sure that they have everything they need to do the job that they've been called to do. And just as we pray for our missionaries and just as we pray for our, uh, our governmental leaders this morning, we want to pray for Jeff and his family that God would show his good hand of favor upon their lives this morning. So would you join me in prayer as we pray for Jeff? Father, I'm so grateful that you love us. You're the God of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth, but you know each of us by name. You know the hairs on our heads. You knew Jeff before he was even born, before the foundation of the world. And you knew in this moment where you would be sending him. You knew the bride that you would put by his side and the family that you would surround him with. And Lord, I'm so grateful because your word says that those who serve in these civil responsibilities, your word says they're in the ministry. And so, Lord, while he goes to serve our country and to protect our troops and to protect our nation, number one, he's serving you. And Lord, as he is faithful to your task and the responsibilities given to him, I pray that, Lord, you'd put a hedge of protection around him. You'd give your angels charge over him. You'd go before him and behind him. You'd protect him and give him safety. God, even as he goes and prepares to go, I I pray that he would see your hand at work in his life in little ways and sometimes big ways. I pray every day he would see and be reminded that you are not a God who's distant. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And Lord, I pray that you would love this, his bride, and I pray that you would love on his family, and I pray that this church would be the church that they would love on this family in profound ways, that there would be a community. In fact, there'd be a whole base of troops that would wonder, who are these people and how, how in the world do they love you so much? Lord, so let our provision for this family, let our protection and our concern for this family while he is away be so profound that the only explanation would be Jesus. God, use this for your glory. Use his life. Use this family to grow your kingdom for your glory. And we can't wait to hear about all you're going to do. We pray for all of our troops this morning. All the men and women serving this morning in difficult and dangerous places. God, protect them. Bring them home safe and bring them home soon. And God, those of us that joy these freedoms every day, let us take full advantage and redeem the time to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ knowing men and women have died to have the freedom we have every day. Thank you, Jesus, for your life and your salvation. We pray all this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you for being here today. Thank you so much. You're dismissed.